Hi, you're listening to another message from Sunny Hill Church. Our prayer is that these messages encourage, empower, edify, and equip you to live for Christ in 2023. Be blessed as you listen in. It's uh, my pleasure this morning to speak, and I've got a title this morning, which is Christ in All the Scriptures. But before we go there, um, isn't it great when the Holy Spirit arrives and you just get that sense that he's here, that he's amongst us, and yes, he has the job of bringing the glory to God, but he also comes to speak to us and to do stuff in our lives, and um, when he comes, it's important that we, we position ourselves in, a, in an open place. And this morning we had several words, and uh, I believe those words were for you and for me. And it's important that we take those on board. Yeah. And this morning, the, the word that I want to bring is a word of encouragement, really. Um, I believe uh, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, wants to encourage us in our reading of Scripture, in our reading of the Bible. And so my title is Christ in All the Scriptures. Who is enjoying Take 5? Yeah, a few of us, some of us, a lot of us. If you don't know what Take 5 is, where have you been? It's, um, it's Sunny Hills Bible Devotional. And uh, we called it Take 5 because we have a short video. It's supposedly less than five minutes, although we've broken the rules a couple of times. Um, so it's Take 5. Of course, it takes a little bit longer to read the Scripture as well. And sometimes it's a, a chunk of passages that we're following when we're reading through a book, or sometimes it's just a single verse that we focus on. But we've had some uh, wonderful Take 5s. Adam Clark has just taken us through. Where are you, Adam? Can't see him. I know he's here this morning. Um, taken us through uh, the tail end of Genesis. And next week, we've got Rob is leading us through um, our theme of hope, week one of hope. I'm looking forward to that. And we've got more to come. We've got Galatians. We're going to look at the book of Galatians. We've got the theme of love we're going to look at. And folk like Anthony and Joe, you're um, on shortly. Phil Coleman is doing a week. Am I, am I selling this to you? It's going to be fantastic. We've got Megan Upton-Crossley, she's recording, and Lee and Rachel are doing a week for us as well. Why wouldn't you follow and make five minutes in your day to follow that and to let God speak to you as well? But why do we read the Bible? Why do we do that? Well, most of us know that the Bible speaks to us. But why is it so important to us as Christians? What is it about this this word, this book that is so important? Well, we believe it's God's love story to us. His story of love to women and men throughout the ages. His revelation of how much he loves mankind. His passion for us. His desire to share that love and that relationship with us. We want to get to know that God. We want to get to know about that relationship. We want to find out about it. And that's why, one of the many reasons why, but I think the principal reason why, the Bible, the scriptures are so important to us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul is writing to um, his son in the faith, Timothy, a young man who he's brought up, uh, in, in Christian faith and set him on his way to uh, maturity and leadership. And he says to Timothy, 
that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for a number of things. But he, the, the word I want to focus on to start with this morning is the fact that it's God-breathed or inspired. The word God has spoken but has been written down for us throughout the ages and saved for us. Now, I believe, and when I was a young Christian, I looked into this quite a lot, that this word is very historically accurate, that it is historically true. I read somewhere that there's more evidence for the New Testament, in fact, way more evidence, documentary evidence for the New Testament, than there is for the life of uh, the death of Julius Caesar. And yet we all believe that Caesar was a real person who lived in history, um, who was murdered. And yet there's far more evidence, and most historians will agree with this, for the accuracy and truth of our New Testament, our Bible. But if that was so, even then it would just be a very good history book. The key to this book is that it's God's living, active word for us. It's the author speaking to us. Imagine if you were reading um, Cormoran Strike. Some of you know who that, what that book is, yeah? And you had J.K. Rowling on speed dial on the phone. He said, J.K. I don't know if that's what, well, that's what the friends call her, so I call her J.K. J.K., what, what's this page here, when this happens, can you tell me, is that a big clue to this? And if you had her on speed dial, how revelatory would that be to the stories that she wrote? Or Agatha Christie. I know she's long gone, but if you had Agatha Christie on your shoulder as you were reading Death on the Nile, and she said, there's a big clue coming up here. Keep your eyes peeled. It's about to happen. Because I never follow the Agatha Christie's. I mean, I, I have no idea what's going on, if I'm honest. But it's God's living word to us. And his Holy Spirit, who's here with us this morning, is just like that. He sits and whispers to us and speaks to us as we read it and brings that word alive. Okay, so the New Testament, pretty good. Yeah, I like the New Testament. It's got lots of good stuff in it. Great read, life of Jesus, lots of explanations in the letters, bit of a dodgy book when you come to Revelation, but you know, on the whole, the New Testament's pretty good, isn't it? But what about the Old Testament? Is that really so helpful? I mean, it's even older. I mean, the New Testament, well, that's 2,000 years old. The Old Testament, my goodness, that's pretty archaic. Can we really find a, a living word in our Old Testament? There are some nice stories, aren't there? The Israelites coming out of Egypt, all those plagues. Cool, that's good. There's a great story. Jonah and the whale. I mean, there's, there's a musical about that. That's got to be a good story too. Joseph and his amazing technicolored dream coat. Yeah, there are some good stories. But all the Old Testament inspired, all the Old Testament, God breathed, really? There's a very interesting episode in Luke chapter 24. And we're going to turn there for a few minutes. Where we've had the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And obviously Jerusalem has been in turmoil in those days. 
But shortly after this, there are a couple of disciples, and they're on a walk. They're heading northwest of Jerusalem, about seven or eight miles to the town of Emmaus. It's about a three, three and a half hour walk. And as they're walking along, this chap comes up beside them. They don't recognize him. Turns out it's Jesus. And as they're walking along, Jesus prods them with a couple of questions. And they say, don't you know what's been going on? It's been turmoil. It's been uproar. Have you really? Have you had your head in the sand or something? And then Jesus starts to talk to them. And he says this. He said to them, this is verse 25 of Luke 24. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus explained to them in all the scriptures about himself. In other words, he was finding himself, Jesus Christ, on every page. I, uh, I grew up in a quite sleepy Methodist church. Um, it, was, it was the Methodist church where no one ever told me I needed to make a response to the gospel. Um, but I do, I'm very grateful because we had... Uh, we had Bible studies and we had um, Bible quizzes. I remember going to Bible quizzes in the circuit and I had to get to know my New Testament because of that. I had to learn it because all the questions were based on the, the New Testament scripture, the, the, the book that we were looking at. And then I went off to university and uh, in the spring, in the February actually of that uh, year, that first year, we had a mission on campus. Now, because I'd been going to church, I kind of carried on going to church at university. And so I joined the Methodist Society, which was actually really very good. Um, uh, the Methsoc, and I joined the Christian Union on campus. Um, and that was brilliant. Um, but uh, there was this mission we had. Roger Forster from Ichthus Church in London was leading it. And um, I was encouraging people to go along because that's what we did in the Christian Union, the Methodist Society. But on about the fourth night... I realized I needed to become a Christian first because on the outside, I was doing all the right stuff. But on the inside, I realized I knew a lot about God, but I didn't know God. And I remember at the meeting, sitting there, and you, you, you might not believe it, but I was a terribly shy teenager. Um, wouldn't say boo to a goose, me. And uh, I remember Roger had invited everybody down to the front. And I thought, I'm not doing that, not a chance. I'm just going to sit here in my own little place. But something was on fire inside me. There was a real yearning for, and I didn't really know what was going on at the time, but it was for God. It was for a hole to be filled. And I remember there that evening giving my life to God in a, in a very naive way, really, just sort of saying, yes, I'm not sure what to, but yes. <laughs> and as I walked home, um, I was at university in Exeter. As I walked home, I remember looking back across the campus, and in the backdrop, you can see Dartmoor. And it was as though Dartmoor was on fire. I remember seeing these, and I'm sure it was only in my mind, but it was like flames burning, orange glows over Dartmoor. Everything was so vivid. I remember it all coming alive. 
So anyway, like I say, because I'd been doing the church thing and doing the Christian thing, my outside didn't change very much. You know, the, the transformation was on the inside. And uh, a few months later, towards the end of the term, one of my good friends, Martin, uh, we were chatting, and he suddenly realized that I didn't have a Bible. And I said to him, well, do I need a Bible then? Because no one had ever told me I, I should have my own Bible. It just hadn't come up in conversation. And I knew this was quite important because people were speaking about it, but my own Bible? Really? Do I need one? I mean, I had one when I was christened, King James Version. It's got a lot of dust on it, somewhere back at home with mother. But I need a Bible too. Okay, so I went out and I bought my first, one of those hardback blue NIVs. Anybody remember those? Yeah? And I bought my first Bible. And you know, God started to speak to me through this written word. It was amazing. It was coming alive. Fast forward a couple of years. I'm still at Exeter. And I have a great friend who's, um, I studied physics. Yeah, I did. And I, um, I had a great friend, Patrick, who was a theoretical physicist. Now, I thought physics was hard, right? <laughs> I did physics with electronics. He did theoretical physics. Blew my brains. I, it just completely lost me. And he was brilliant at it, absolutely brilliant. Anyway, he came along to a mission week we had there, and he got saved. I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord. It was so exciting. And uh, I said to him, one of the first things I said to him was, you need a Bible, Patrick, because I'd learned my lesson. <laughs> You need to go out and buy yourself a Bible. And he did. Anyway, he started reading his Bible. And um, I, I went back uh, after my final year. I went back to university to do a postgraduate um, in, in education. I became a teacher. And um, Patrick was still there because he was doing a postgraduate in theoretical physics. I have no idea what that was about, but there you go. And uh, about the first thing he said when we met after the summer holiday was, Kevin, Kevin, have you read Second Chronicles 20? I went, what? He said, have, I, have you read Second, Second Chronicles 20? It's brilliant, isn't it? I went, yes. <laughs> Racking my brains to think, what on earth? I thought I knew my Bible, but Second Chronicles. Now, it's the story of Jehoshaphat. Anybody now know what I'm talking about? Yeah, great story, great story. And Patrick was raving about it. Oh, Second Chronicles 20, Kevin. It's fantastic. I said, oh, well, I know. I'm, I need to go away and reread this and find out what it is. Great story, great story. But he was eating up his scriptures. He loved it. And it's interesting, isn't it? In this verse here in Luke 24, that Jesus begins speaking to them and explain to them what was said in all the scriptures. All of them. Now, of course, the Old Testament was Jesus' scriptures. The New Testament wasn't written well when this... Uh, episode is recorded he's talking about the old testament when he talks about the scriptures jesus explained to them all that was there that was concerning him in the old testament jesus in the old testament let's just get hold of that for a moment because suddenly that transforms this archaic book into a really exciting interesting book interesting scripture it was luke's Bible. It was St. Paul's Bible. So here we're referring to this Old Testament that we have. 
Okay, there are some great passages in the Old Testament, aren't there? Take Isaiah chapter 9. Everybody knows that because it's on the Christmas cards, isn't it? Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. We all know that one. Great, great verse, great chapter. Yeah, there are some good bits in the Old Testament, aren't there? But all the scriptures? I mean, who knows a great verse out of Habakkuk? Maybe you do. Or Leviticus. Ooh, Leviticus, that's a bit... All the scriptures. Christ revealed himself to them in all the scriptures. So, today I want to ask you, are you excited about scripture? Does scripture thrill you? Does the Old Testament excite you? Do you find Jesus in all the scriptures? It's interesting here because a little bit later on after this person who uh, was giving them this Bible study on the road to Emmaus, (laughs) after he um, leaves them and they sit down, they've had dinner and he goes and they realize who it was, they say in Luke 24 verse 32, were not our hearts burning while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. I love that, that he opened the scriptures. It doesn't just mean he opened them, it means he opened them. He revealed himself in the scriptures. Their hearts were burning. And that's the question I challenge myself with when I sit down to read the Bible. Is my heart burning? Is it really on fire? I mean, some days it's, it's not so exciting, I've got to admit. <laughs> Someone once said to me, reading the Bible is a bit like having breakfast. You've got to do it, haven't you? You've got to have breakfast to keep you going through the day. And sometimes it's a bit like having toast. Yeah, it's toast, you know. Toast is okay. You can jazz it up a bit with jam, but toast is toast. It's not exciting. But some days it's like having a full English You know, double sausages, bacon on the side, three eggs maybe if you're really going for it. A full English breakfast. Wow, it's a feast. And if I'm honest, that's a bit like reading the Bible for me. Some days I've just got to eat the toast, but other days, wow, it's a full English. Some of you will know of my brother-in-law and sister-in-law who became Christians during lockdown, Deborah Warby. Uh, They came on an alpha course we ran, or uh, Colin and Joe ran um, online. And um, they became uh, Christians during that alpha course. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment. Um, But uh, Warby (laughs) was, uh, he said, "Um, I've started reading my Bible, Kevin. I said, oh, that's great, great. What are you reading? So he said, well, I'm just plowing through from beginning to end like you do any book. I said, well, yeah, probably not the best place to start. How about we start with Mark's gospel? Because it's a great um, introduction to Jesus. It's short, it's brief, it's to the point. He said, okay, I'll read Mark's gospel. I said, tell you what, we'll read it with you at the same time. Uh, And then if you've got any questions or we can talk about it, we can discuss it online. It'd be brilliant, something to do. Because they were on furlough. Remember those days, furlough? Anybody remember that? Yeah? Well, we didn't. We didn't get that. We had to work right through... um, But anyway, uh, so off they went. So after two or three days, we met up with them online, and we'd read the first three, four chapters of Mark, thinking we'll keep up a chapter a day, you know. 
So I said, right, Warby, where have you got to? He said, oh, I'm on chapter 14. I've got so many questions. <laughs> he was eating up his Bible. It was incredible. He, he just read and read and read. We had to keep pointing to new, but I couldn't keep up. I said, it's no good. I was going to read with you. Can't keep up. Um, you, you keep reading. It's brilliant. But um, we'll, we'll do our best. But they were on fire. Their hearts were burning for the scriptures. It was brilliant to see. So how do we find Jesus in the Old Testament? Where is he? What's this about? Well, I want to suggest that there are three different ways we can find Jesus when we read the Old Testament. First is direct prophecy, and we'll just touch on that briefly. Second is indirect prophecy, and we'll touch very briefly on that. But the third one, which really excites me, is what I call the foreshadows of Jesus or the types of Jesus. So we'll just briefly touch on the other two. Direct prophecy, first of all. This is where the Old Testament speaks really clearly about the one who is to come, about the Messiah that the Jews were expecting. So if you look, for example, in Zechariah and chapter 9, this was written 500 years before Jesus came to the earth. Um, It talks about the king riding on a donkey. Now, no kings were riding on a donkey at that time until Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, the Sunday of the Feast of Pentecost, a uh, Feast of, um, uh, someone help me, Passover, thank you. I knew it began with P, not Pentecost, Passover. So the, the, the idea is that There are direct prophecies that clearly point to a coming Messiah. Then there's indirect prophecy. And again, we'll touch very briefly on this. So, for example, think of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, that psalm. And during it, in the the process of reading that psalm, it's it's an incredible description of someone who might have been crucified on a cross. My bones stick out, it says. My my throat is dry. Um, Now, of course, you can't tell that until... You, you, hear, you read about the crucifixion, you understand that. So it's sort of indirect prophecy, speaking about what will happen, but not clearly talking about the Messiah to come. So we've got direct prophecy and indirect prophecy. And I've gone through those really quickly because um, I want to jump to the third one, which is the one that thrills me the most. And that's what I call the foreshadows or the types of Christ. So what do I mean by that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10... Paul talks about um, things occurring as examples. And he particularly points to a rock that accompanied the Israelites as they left Egypt and went through the wilderness. And there was a rock that they would get water from. And Paul says, quite clearly in his mind, but not evidently to us, he says clearly, and that rock was Christ. (laughs) Where did you get that from, Paul? Well, that was, his, that was his Bible, the Old Testament. That was the, the book that he knew. And he says the rock was Christ. Well, it wasn't, was it? It was a rock. But it was a foreshadow. The word he uses is a type. But we, we have it translated as example in most Bibles. An example of Christ. That Jesus Christ, when he was crucified, poured living water out to us through his Holy Spirit. So there is a foreshadowing of what is to come in these types, in these shadows. 
And they can be things, a rock. They can be people. They can be events. And so what I want to do, just briefly, is touch on two foreshadows. Um, now, we've just been reading Take 5, and uh, Adam has taken us through the, the tail end of the book of Genesis. So we've just read about Joseph um, and his life story. And Joseph is um, an amazing foreshadow of Christ. Um, there are about 31 different aspects to his life which point to Jesus. How exciting is that? I'm going to read you five of them. First of all, Joseph was loved by his father above all the other brothers. Jesus, the father spoke about him. This is my son who I love. So we've got the foreshadowing and the reality. Now, of course, the foreshadow doesn't live up to anything like or near to what Jesus is. But it just paints a little bit of a picture. So he was loved by his father above all others. He was sold, Joseph, by one of his brothers. Jesus was sold by one of his disciples, one of his brothers. Joseph's life was sold for silver, 20 pieces. Jesus' life was sold for silver, 30 pieces. This is my favorite. In one day, Pharaoh goes from, uh, sorry, Pharaoh, Joseph goes from being in the dungeon to second in the kingdom only to Pharaoh. You can see where this is going, can't you? In one day, on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave to second in the kingdom to the Father. That's a brilliant foreshadow. I love that one. Pharaoh put everything under Joseph's feet. All of Egypt had to bow down to him. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Brilliant foreshadows, and they go on and on and on, and we haven't got time to go into all of them. Isn't it thrilling? That is there, hidden away for us. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Numbers. Numbers. I love maths. Anybody love maths? Yeah, I got, I got one. Hayden here is nodding. <laughs> Caleb's definitely shaking his head. I love maths. I'm going to let you into a secret. I used to be a maths teacher. I did. But I love, I love numbers. I love maths. And um, the book of Numbers I find really quite thrilling. And uh, I'm going to ask you to turn, turn with me to chapter 2 of Numbers. And somewhere here, oh, it's appeared. As if by magic, the shopkeeper appeared. In this case, it's the whiteboard. I hope everybody can see that. Um, and chapter one of Numbers, if you've got a, a paper Bible here, it's really helpful because it uh, spreads it all out nice and neatly for you in front of you. But chapter one of Numbers, um, it's a census. They literally add up all the men who were about at that time in all the Israelite tribes. But then in chapter two, we start to read about the way that they had to camp when they were on the move. So they had to stop in a place and camp somewhere. And it was laid out in a certain way. So, first of all, at the very centre, they put the tabernacle, the place of meeting with God. So I've drawn the tabernacle here in the middle. It was sort of like a a walled tent um, that the Israelites could go into. The priests were in there. 
And then right in the middle was the Holy of Holies, the place where, they would, where, where God would uh, dwell, would reign on the ark. And um, the, the high priest could go in there once a year. But uh, you'll see I've drawn it this way around. You'll see why in a minute. And the entrance to the tabernacle was on the east side. I've put east down here. And then the Israelites had to camp around the tabernacle. And we're told how many. Now, I've got a slide. We'll get the right one here, which is one possible way they could have camped around. They could just have camped around the tabernacle like this, um, Certain tribes had to be on certain sides, and that's one option, which it could have been. So we'll take that slide down, but I don't think they camped like that. And I'll tell you why at the end of this little bit. But we need to look at the numbers here. The numbers are quite exciting. They really are, honest. Stick, bear with me for a minute. So we're told that on the east side, there were three tribes that camped. They were Judah, Isaac, and Ze- uh, Isaac, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And they camped on the east side of the tabernacle. And there were 186,400. Stick with me, we're going somewhere. And uh, they would have camped like this, in my opinion. On the east side, the Bible says. The Old Testament says they camped on the east side. I've drawn nine rows, because there are 186,000, it's roughly 20,000 a row, but you know, it's just just a... (laughs) Just for proportionality, because I want you to see what happens. On the south side were the tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And we're told that on the south side, there are 151,450 people. So I'm going to draw those, this side. It's about seven lines, roughly, on my scale. And then on the west side were Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, 108,000 100. So that works out at about five lines. And then on the west, on the north side, sorry, were Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, the last three tribes. And they were 157,600, which is about eight lines. Now, if you were Balaam, an Old Testament character, looking out, from the hills towards the camp of the Israelites, you would see this. You'd see the Israelite tribes laid out in a cross, and at the center of the cross was the presence of God, the place where the Israelites could meet with God Himself, at the center of this layout. And I think it's laid out that way because at the end of chapter 2, it says in verse 34, the Israelites did everything the Lord had commanded. This is the way they camped. It's almost as though the writers say there was a precision to this. Under their standards, and that is the way they set out, each of them with their clan and family. There's just a hint there that God was showing us something very specific. And why wouldn't he? You know, he planned this book. He planned it right through the ages. God at the center of the cross. And that foreshadows Christ on the cross for us. God sacrificed on the cross. Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard me talking about knowing God. And you're thinking, 
I know a lot about God, but I don't know him deep inside. Maybe that picture is touching your heart and saying, yeah, I need God right at the center of my life. If that's you, come down and talk to the prayer team at the end. Come down and say, I want God at the center of my life. But I want to encourage you this morning. If, if you find the Old Testament a bit dry, a bit uninteresting, there will be days like that, let's be honest. But it's also a really exciting book where Jesus is found, I believe, in all the scriptures. Or maybe you're, you're going on really well with this book and, you know, Take 5 is doing it for you or your Bible devotional scheme. Go deeper with God. There's always more. We spoke this morning. You heard that word about that jar that was being filled up. There's always more. God has got so much for you, so much to reveal to you. So let's just take a moment to pause. And let God speak to our hearts. He wants to reveal himself to you, whether that's for the first time or for the 101st time, through every page on Scripture. He's got so much to show you. He's got plans for you that he will reveal to you through Scripture that you had not even imagined. And he will speak to you through his word. He is faithful. And so, Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning and say, when we open those pages next, whether it's early in the morning or late at night, would you presence yourself by your Holy Spirit? Speak to our hearts and our minds and reveal Jesus to us so that we would know him more so that we would be changed, so that we would be transformed into the likeness of Christ, and so that we would grasp more of your incredible love story for us, revealed through Scripture.